Warning, this review contains spoilers, although I don't think it's really possible to spoil a movie like this. Darren Aronofsky's new film, The Fountain, has been getting a rough ride out there. It's been praised as a profound and bittersweet tone poem, and damned as an overwrought stylistic mess. Booed at its first screening in Venice, cheered with a ten-minute standing ovation at the public viewing the next night, currently ticking 48% over at the tomato meter, this kind of mixed reception is not what a young filmmaker wants for his long-awaited third installment, especially for a project with such a troubled history as The Fountain. I'm going to show you my hand right now and tell you that you should all go out and see it and give the movie the chance it deserves. As you should see for yourselves, the fountain is deeply flawed and falls short of greatness. But it aims for greatness, it is earnest and passionate, and it is breathtaking in its scope and beauty. And besides, it's Aronofsky. Aronofsky is a director worth following. He has not yet been prolific, but he has already established his importance and has a long career yet ahead of him. He first came to our attention with Pi, a frenetic and nerve-rattling look at the dark side of math. Then came Requiem for a Dream, a horrific examination of addiction in which Aronofsky turned up the sensory volume so high that it was impossible to watch and impossible to look away. Now comes The Fountain, the story of a man, or three men, across a thousand years. Thomas, played by Hugh Jackman, is a conquistador at the court of Isabella of Spain, fighting to save his beloved queen from the Inquisition. She sends him across the Pacific to the jungles of South America to search for the Mayan sacred tree of life, whose sap brings immortality. How a three-year-round trip to score exotic dope from the Amazon will save Spain is at best unclear, but there it is. These 16th century sequences are all shot in a dark, brooding light, with Jackman and his comrades clothed in dark leather, the Mayans clothed in dirt, and everything taking place at night, or darkened by the canopy of jungle or the unlit Cordoban architecture of Spain. On the two occasions when Aronofsky allows daylight to enter this timeline, the effect is shocking. In another timeline, Jackman plays Tom, a neurosurgeon who has apparently left his clinical practice for pure research on brain tumors. He's highly motivated. His beloved wife, Izzy, played, like Isabella, by a luminous Rachel Weisz, is dying of some sort of glioma and hasn't long to live. Again, Tom's quest is a chaotic one. The depiction of his research is intelligent. Aronofsky's story was co-written by a neuroscientist, and it is clear to everyone except Tom that his work at the bench and in the animal lab will not bear fruit soon enough to translate into a cure for Izzy. Her impending death is a crushing weight for him, all the more so because he cannot accept it. Tom is a faithful reflection of Thomas, fevered, reckless, obsessed. But Izzy's reflection of Isabella is more complex. Like Isabella, she has courage in the face of impending disaster, but rather unlike the Queen, she has accepted her fate. She has written the better part of a book, The Fountain, the story of a conquistador on a quest for his queen. She is taken with Mayan mythology, especially their selection of a dying star wrapped in a nebula as symbolic of eternal life. She recounts to Thomas a story she once heard of a dying man buried under a tree, so that his flesh would enter the flesh of the tree and all the creatures who fed on it, his death becoming the entry to awe.
Weiss's portrayal of this brave, loving, dying woman is remarkable. There is more daylight in this timeline, but it is winter, and there is a gray pall over everything. In the third timeline, Tommy, shaved bald, dressed and living like some sort of Zen monk, occupies a tiny bubble of earth that he shares with an ancient and dying tree. There can be no doubt that this is Izzy's grave, and that when he eats morsels of the tree's dying flesh, that he is eating Izzy. This is a penetrating symbol of Tom's crime in the middle timeline. His futile quest for a cure robs Izzy of the life she has left. His bubble flies through space toward a dying star shrouded in golden gas, and if he can just reach the star before Izzy's tree of life dies, he knows they will both live forever. He meditates Zazen and does Tai Chi badly, but he is still that fevered conquistador crushed by his quest for eternal life. This timeline, intercut with the other two, is more gorgeous, more glorious, and more problematic. Some might argue that it should have been dispensed with entirely. It would have relieved the film of much of its excess, but also much of its beauty. And while I could have done without the ill-considered and pretentious Buddhist-Taoist conceits, these sequences do serve as an effective recapitulation of the overall structure hinted at by the other two. Moving from the specter of inevitable death to an eternal transcendence not dreamed of by Tom or Thomas, from darkness into a searing, unbearable light. What is interesting about this structure is that the characters in each timeline have only the most oblique and symbolic connections to the others. There is no indication that Tom has any memory of 16th century Spain, or that Bubble Tommy remembers being a neurosurgeon. It is one story, told three times, and the characters do not necessarily remember who they are from one timeline to the next. This is no accident. Thomas the Conquistador lives on in Bubble Tommy, and yet there is no continuous line of selfhood from one to the next. It took me a while to wrap my head around this, but I think Aronofsky is pointing, in a rather subtle and ingenious way, at the difference between extreme longevity and immortality. In the 21st century, we're obsessed with immortality, just like all the other centuries. The difference is that now we have a sense that it's coming within grasp. As the planet warms, biodiversity collapses, fisheries fail and WMD proliferate, we're incongruously ready to believe that shark fin cartilage, nanotech, alpha-lipoic acid, or some exotic tree sap will hold off death, or at least keep us looking good into our 80s. Turn us all into Methuselah, as Don Henley once said, but where are we going to park? The culture of life celebrates the very human fecundity that is slowly strangling our world. At the end of Aronofsky's 16th century timeline, Conquistador Thomas finds the tree of life and drinks of its sap. What follows is an astonishing image of life run amok, an image that is both warning and promise. This may all have a certain degree of profundity, but it's not profoundly new. Ultimately, Aronofsky's films put message in service to the medium, not the other way around. I like his work, a lot, but he's not saying anything particularly deep with it. Pi tells us that obsessive genius can be self-destructive. Not exactly a revelation. Requiem warns that drug addiction is very, very bad for you. Well, another important safety tip. Thanks for the heads up, Darren. And in The Fountain, we learn that immortality is not everything it's cracked up to be, a moral that goes back at least as far as, I don't know, the Bible, the Buddha. Still, 
It's far more substantial than about 90% of Hollywood SF, more's the pity. You can take this farther and say that Aronofsky's work boils down to a single idea, the idea that the extremes of human experience are just that. Get too close to the flame and you'll be burned. Aronofsky's florid, hypersensory style of filmmaking is a perfect fit to this kind of story, and sometimes he gets burned himself when he takes it too far. In The Fountain, Aronofsky piles on the symbolic echoes from one timeline to the other, too many, I think, so that they threaten to crush the film under their weight. Carl Jung would have been intrigued, but the audience is overwhelmed, and I found myself frantically trying to tie it all together as I watched. But I'll go out on a limb and forgive him for that. Like Pi and Requiem, the fountain story is not a particularly profound one, but in Aronofsky's hands it makes for moments of profound intensity and beauty. And I'll take that. This is Jonathan Sullivan for Escape Park.